last many months is we've been going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith is um, a very clear statement, uh, clear statements of the belief of the Christian faith. Right, so that's what we've been doing. And we've done 17 chapters so far. And uh, tonight is the night where we do revision. Right, we do revision. Um, so I've got 65 questions for you tonight. And I'm not sure if it's going to be a long night or a short night. It depends how much you all remember. I was thinking of um, how to do this revision. It's either I go through the 17 chapters, which will be very long, or I go through 17 chapters and then next time we meet, you do the exams. But I thought that that would take even longer. So I thought if I give you the exams, then I go through the answers, then we'll just go through the whole thing all over again. So I thought what I'll do is I'll give you the questions tonight. We do the exam paper together. How about that? <laughs> I'm sure that's welcoming, right? So we do the exams together. Now the reason why I feel it's important for us to revise is because when we don't, we just go through and go through um, and we forget what we learn. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is to build a strong foundation, to build a clear understanding from scriptures about our faith. Right? It answers many questions that we have in our minds about Christianity. So I do hope that um, this revision would jog your memory. And also when I'm going through the revision, uh, I invite questions if it's not clear uh, or any other questions that are on your mind. So our friends and visitors do, do, do uh, feel free to ask any question as well. Alright? So first of all, let's turn our Bibles to 2 Timothy. Second. Timothy. Chapter 3. We shall read verses 16 and 17 together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I'm oh sorry, 16 and 17 together. Reading. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. May God bless the reading of this word. Let us turn to God in prayer. Let's bow heads. A gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for seeing us through yet another week. For your protection, your provision, your care over our loved ones and our family, over us as we work, as we study. Lord, for your goodness and mercy as we serve you at home, in church. And Lord, we do pray that even as we gather, even now you will remove every tiredness, every distraction, and help us, O oh Lord, to focus on the study of your word. We pray, Father, once again, you search our hearts. We have sinned against you in many ways, we are sure. Lord, show to us that we may confess, we may repent, Lord, we ask again for you for the cleansing and washing in the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. At this time, we would have unbroken fellowship with you. And Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Help us to remember the things that we have learned. And not just to remember, 
But Lord, we pray, we know you better. We will love you more, serve you more, and know how to live our lives in a way that will glorify you. Pray, Father, for every group that has met in thy house tonight to study your word. Be with them. Speak to each heart, O Lord. Strengthen the faith of your saints and build a firm foundation for this church. We pray that you will be in our midst to bless. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we have a passage that reminds us that all scripture, in other words, the word of God, is given to us by God for what? It is useful, it is profitable, profitable for doctrine, that's what we've been studying. Doctrine is the systematic understanding of the teachings of God's word. Doctrine for reproof. So the Word of God not only teaches us doctrines, but it scolds us. Why does it scold us? It scolds us because very often we fall into sin. And as we read, we realize that sin, we are rebuked. And then it is for correction. It helps us, therefore, to live rightly. So God's Word is wonderful. So many aspects that we can benefit from. And for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God, that the man of God will be perfect. Perfect means mature. The Word of God will help us to mature spiritually, mature in our understanding of God, truly furnished unto all good works, and it will help us to know how to live our lives, doing all good works. So the Word of God is where we must base all our beliefs, all our, um, use it as our guidance for all our practice in life in the church. So that is what I want to start with. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is based purely on God's Word. And that is why we study it systematically. Now, so we are going to go through our questions now. Those of you who have your PBK books or your notes, or if you want, you can log on to, just use your handphone and log on to, uh, you just type WCF space with proof WCF space with proof P-R-O-O-F right? Westminster Confession WCF with proof and you get basically the different chapters okay now I hope we can finish this in one night I did not finish up to chapter 17 because we already have 65 questions I think um, that will be a lot okay so We'll go through that. As I've said in the revision, I'll, I'll pull out the key highlights of what we must remember. Now, 17 chapters we covered. The first one is of the Holy Scriptures. Alright, so question number one. I ask, why did God give men the Holy Bible and not just general revelation? General revelation means what? By looking around, by looking at creation, we can know that there is a God. Just like you look at a car, you know there's a design, right? It's intricate, it works fine, it works well. Just like in nature, we look around us, we know there is a creator, there's a God, a far superior being. Now, is that not good enough for us to know that there is a God? Why does God, as we read just now, he saying all scripture is given by inspiration. Why does God give us the Bible? Look around, you know there is a God, just look for Him, that's good enough. Why the Bible? So anyone remember the answer? Grace. Uh, it's not enough um, just to show you know, people like the natural, natural 
natural revelation. Very good, alright? It's a totally complete answer. Alright, general revelation, nature itself is insufficient. Why is it insufficient? It is insufficient because it tells us there is a God. But what is this God? Who is He? We can't tell. Number two, we, can't, we also do not understand our origin. Well, we see nature, but we do not know who, who we are in relation to God. And then number three, we also do not know how to be saved. We just know there's a God. We may know that there are sinners going to hell. There's a holy God that we must face one day. But how to be saved? Just general revelation does not give us those answers. Which is why God is a loving God. God made sure He gave us specific answers to all those things. We know who He is. We know who we are. And we know how to be saved. Alright? So, wow, you remember lesson one. That's very good. Now, actually there's another question that I wanted to ask. Why did the Westminster Confession of Faith Divines, why did they start with chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures? Why did they not start with what is in chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity? Why did they want to start with this topic first? Choosing to start with Holy Scriptures, the Bible, telling us what the Bible is. Why? Cheryl, do you remember? That's correct. Because if we do not believe God's word in the first place, then we start talking about God. Why? How do I know that what you're saying is true? Right? That is why they very rightly started in this place, telling us about what scripture is all about. And that scripture is indeed God's word. Alright, we'll come to that. Now, question number two. There are total number, how many number of how many books in the entire Bible? Hey. 66 books. Very good. As Christians, you must know, alright? 66 books. Now the question is how many Old Testament? How many New Testament? Sarah, how many Old Testament? 39 in the Old Testament and how many in the New? 27. Very good. I always remember 3 times 9 equals 27. But it's not that formula. Just 39 Old Testament. And the Old Testament is written in what original language? Um, the job. Old Testament. Cantonese? <laughs> Hebrew? Greek? Italian? Which one? Old Testament. Hebrew, right? Old Testament is Hebrew, New Testament, Greek. Okay, so these are basic understanding. Now, I also want, the reason why I want to mention this is We've always said, right, I've always reminded you, God chose languages that are very, very uh, unique of all the languages in the world. For example, the Greek language. Why did God choose the Greek language? Why not uh, any other, Arabian, and so on? Because the Greek language is unique in the sense that it is extremely precise. The Greek language is a very, very precise language. In fact, today, the Bible Greek language is, is cast in stone, okay, it, it, it doesn't change anymore. It's so accurate that when you, if you are Greek, you read it, 
you know exactly what it means. You know when I say go, just to say in English, don't go. In Greek, you know exactly, is it don't begin to go means stay put, don't go away. Or you are going and he says stop. Right? It's that kind of precision. And when God speaks, when he speaks to a whole group, or he's speaking to a specific person, all very precise. So God chose a language that would describe exactly what he wants to say, right? So very wonderful. And the Hebrew language is, is also wonderful in its different ways, but we're not here to talk about that. Number three, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Caleb, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Uh, it says so. <laughs> <laughs> because the Bible tells us so. We just read just now, all scripture is what? Given by, that is inspired. Scripture is inspired. Means God breathed it. Scripture is God's word. Inspired means God breathed. The literal Greek meaning is from his breath. Okay? So the Bible is God's breath. It's inspired. Because the Bible tells us so. So, Rachel, isn't that an argue, circular argument? So I'm being even tells you. Rachel, how do you know the Bible is God's word? You wouldn't tell me everything else, but first you tell me the Bible is God's word. That's why I believe what he says. Then your friend says, why is the Bible? How do you know the Bible is God's word? Then you say, because the Bible tells me so. So this is a circular argument. It's silly. So how would you answer? Suddenly, maybe we should not be Christians anymore. How do you answer? You don't know. Alright. Anyone remember the answer? Maybe you skip the one. Uh, uh, ben, do you remember? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. How do you say a circular argument? Yes, it is. <laughs> that should shut him up. So yes, Ben, then you say, yeah, you see, it's a circular argument. So he fails. Doesn't mean it's not true. A circular argument doesn't mean it's not true, right? You hold the ball. This is a ball. Then you say, how do you know it's a ball? Because the whole world says a ball. How do you know it's no, it's not true? A circular argument doesn't mean it is not true. What how else would you answer? What do you think? Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. Oh, Adrian is inside, so you can't hear. You can't, you can't hear him. Uh, anyone? Rowena, you're good at these things. <laughs> what do you say? It's a circular argument. We get it all the time. Huh? So what? It is what it is. Yeah. So we ask the question. Yeah, yeah, sorry. It's up to you if you want to believe it or not. It is what it is. It is up to you, it is what it is. Now, then you ask the question back. How do you know it is not? And then the person says, because I don't believe it is. They say, just because you don't believe it, you just say you don't believe that it is not. It's also a secular argument, right? He says, because I say it is not. Because the world says it is not. Now, at the end of the day, Christians, I ask you this question. Will you be shaken? If someone says it's a secular argument, oh yeah, that's true, right? God says, the Bible says that I believe. Maybe it's, now I'm beginning to get worried. Should we feel like that, Leah? Should we feel like that? Why? Very good. Ultimately, it is about faith, isn't it? Ultimately, it is about faith. The Christian believes in faith. 
that God says, the Bible says, God says that the Bible is true, the Bible says that what God says is true, and therefore we have faith. It's just like unbelievers. They say there is no God. You ask them, how do you know there is no God? Um, what do they know is, how do you know there is no God? Because there is no proof. Because there is no proof, so there is no God. So how do you answer? There are plenty of proofs. Look around you. Creation. Then they say, no, I don't believe that. So they say, ultimately, whatever they see, they don't believe because they have faith that there is no God. Understand? They also have faith. They also have a faith system. Their faith system is that I don't believe. I don't believe. You know what I see? I don't believe. So they have faith. It's just that they have faith that there is no God. It's still faith. Alright? So I hope we do not get shaken. Ultimately, it's as clear as right. The answer it is about faith. Now, next. This is important number four. What should we use to arbitrate when there is argument with what a passage says in the Bible? So you show a passage to someone, and then the person says, "No, this is not what God's words say. This is what it means instead." All right? They argue. Now, when we enter into a situation where you cannot come to agreement, how? What is the what is the principle in interpreting holy scriptures? We studied the infallible rule of interpreting scriptures. Ilwa, do you remember? When there is disagreement on what a passage or verse is, how to resolve that? Say it. Look at the Bible. Right? Not call pastor. <laughs> Look at the Bible. That is what the Bible says, not what pastor says, not what church says. Is what the other parts of the Bible says. Understand that? So, let me read to you, verse is a confession, chapter 1, verse 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Understand that? Other places in Scriptures must not contradict what you are interpreting. That is important. Now, scriptures, the scriptures have many meanings. Can you ask uh, Douglas? Does scripture have many meanings or just one meaning? The passage. Only one. Remember, in the Bible, there's only one meaning. Now, when God says something, God says, the way that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Hmm? And in Greek, when the word when there's a the in front, is normally there is not. When there is a the added, in this case there was, it is a very it, is, it signifies uniqueness, one and only. Right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now do you think God means something else? Or really that there is no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. There's no other truth in this world except God's truth. And there is no other um, life. No one else can give eternal life except the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think God only meant that? It means only one thing. Or there is another meaning. Because today Christians, even professors, say that. I told you in I showed some of you in the interview. Famous Christians who write books that a lot of people buy it, you know? When interviewed, 
They say, well, God says that, but he may mean something else. There may be another way that he hasn't told us. Scripture has only one meaning. Understand that. But it can have many what? Say again? Cannot. One meaning is one interpretation. Alright, but there can have many? Applications. That's correct. Right? Brother Mark said, many applications. Scripture has only one meaning but many applications. For example, God says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Right? There's only one meaning, not to love the world. Okay? And the things that are in the world. Because it's going to conflict with your love with God. He can have many applications. As a housewife, he has different applications. As a student, he has different applications. As a working person, different applications. Old people, elderly, young, babies, different application to them. To, to the adults, the world is different things. To the child, the world is, can be that toy on the ground. That's the whole world, a different application to that. But, same thing, don't love the world. Alright, so that, now let's move quickly. Okay, so now here, um, number five. Oh, so let me just round up number four. Whenever there is disagreement, there are three C's you always remember. Number one, the context. Remember we studied that? The context. Look at immediately the verses before and after. And you will get the context. Okay? Like sometimes, um, yeah. you can't pull a verse and just want him to say what you mean. For example, um, Judas went out and hung himself. Right? You just read that, oh, it's God, God says that when we are sent, we should go out and ourselves. No, you read before that and after that, you read, oh, Judas sinned. Judas didn't want to repent, he shouldn't do that, alright? So context. Context. The second thing is that it does not contradict other parts of Scripture. It does not contradict other parts of Scripture. That's why you must know Scriptures. If you don't know, people say, oh, this is what it means, this is what it means. You do not know other parts of Scriptures, you believe. For example, he says, after we see that verse, a man is not justified, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. How are you going to understand this? We are saved by works or not? You must understand that it is not contradicting to other parts of scripture. And the third one is consistent. The third thing is consistent with theology. Consistent with theology. Every time you struggle with a passage when you read the Bible, you're not sure how to interpret that. And then people tell you different things. Check these three C's. It does not contradict theology. Alright, we see one verse in James afterwards. Now, number five, what is inspiration and preservation of scriptures? Give scriptural truth. Okay, what is inspiration? Phyllis, uh, what is inspiration of scripture? What does the word inspire mean? Given by God. Given by God, right? Actually, the, the literal meaning is like God, God's breath, God breathed. My friends, do you understand what it means? We just read scripture just now. Every time you open the Bible and read, every word that you're reading is, is you're hearing the voice of God speaking to you. Do you understand that? That is the meaning of inspiration. Don't read it like, oh, this is written by Paul, the Apostle. This is written by Matthew, 
This is written by um, a Peter, the apostle. No, it is God who spoke, breathed the words into the hearts of this man, and they wrote exactly word for word what God meant. It's not interpreted by the apostles that they wrote it. So when we read scriptures, we hold in our hands the very verbal, um, exact verbal words of what God meant. So wonderful, right? When you read, that's why some people, they read scriptures, they tremble. They, they literally want to stand and read that is God's very word. So don't take it right. Next, what is now inspiration? So Phoenix, still at you. Where's the proof that scripture is inspired? We just read in the beginning, right? Second Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Right? Or 16 and 17, I'm sorry. All scriptures given by inspiration. All. Is it some? Is it some parts? No, it is all. All means from the first alphabet in Genesis to the last alphabet in Revelation is God's very word. Now, what about preservation? What is the meaning of preservation here? Um, to be kept and preservation to be kept and to be preserved. Now the question is, does the Bible say that God will preserve His words? Where? Matthew 5, 18. Alright, so we write down Matthew 5, 18. But there's one that I want us to turn to. Psalm. Any of your Very good. Psalm chapter 12, verse 6. Now write that down and let's turn to this one. Matthew 18 is, uh, is Psalm chapter 12. Now let's read together verses 7 and 8. Shall we read uh, 6? 6 and 7. Let's read together. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth. Purify us seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, and thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So here, it is very specific. The words of God, they are so pure. They are, God will keep them. And it's specific. You, God himself, will keep them. God himself will preserve them. Now, why is it important to understand this? Maybe some of you are not aware. Maybe some of you have Bibles that when you read, you will see a verse missing. Do you have Bibles like that? If verse 3, verse 4, and then verse 5 is just a 5 and then verse 6. I was just reading the Chinese Bible, one Chinese Bible this afternoon. Because I need to speak in Chinese tomorrow, so I was like, hey, this verse is missing. It's just verse 5, and then it's a blank, and then verse 6. Alright? Have you have Bibles that at the bottom says, or oh, this verse should not be in the Bible? In fact, we're going to come to a verse after this. This verse should not be there. They were not in the original, the best original manuscript. So you read Bibles that at the bottom says this verse not there. And then when it comes to the mark, a whole chunk of the last part of the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. They say this whole chunk should not be there. And they say, what is this about? Now, we just read that God said, I will preserve my words, right? Means, first we say God's word is His breath. Means, when God wants to say things like, uh, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In Greek, for example. 
is exactly how God said. Okay? None of it will be lost. It is not even supposed to be like, believe in Jesus Christ so that you will be saved. It's exactly how God wants it to be phrased. Understand that? And when God wants it to be phrased so exactly and He wants it to be written exactly as He said it, He kept it word for word also. Alphabet for alphabet also. Understand? That is a very important reminder because today Bible colleges teach that many words in God's word are lost and therefore we have to figure out which ones are supposed to be there, which ones are not supposed. I don't know whether our friends are hearing this for the first time, but this is um, most Bible colleges teach that today. Very sad. Of course, there are many good Bible colleges that don't. Thank God for that. So that's why we highlight from Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me read to you what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Now it says the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God means in the original language God God spoke these words in Hebrew and Greek for men to write down and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages by his singular care means God personally himself took the care and in providence means he made sure that the way things happen people can try and delete it People copied it wrongly, people tried to destroy it, there are errors, accidental and real, but God in His providence will make sure that there will be pure copies. Understand it? So after God says, this is my word, throughout the ages, God personally always intervened and make sure that there are copies that are exactly as what He meant. Did people copy wrongly? Of course. Did people purposely change scriptures? Of course. But God promised they will never win. So the Bible that we have, of course this is English Bible, but the original Bible, Hebrew, Masoretic text, Greek, um, in Textus Receptus, those are preserved, pure by God. We can trust it 100%. Understand that? Alright? Okay, so that is what um, the Westminster also rightly pointed out a long time ago. So there's a big battle today going on. Last time people fought about inspiration. People say not every part of the Bible is Bible. When it comes to dates, when it comes to science, when it comes to names of places, God did not inspire that. No, God inspired those as well. Okay? Exact dates, exact time, everything. That is the word of God that we have. Why is this important? Maybe I'll ask this. Ask who now. Colin, why are we sinners? Why are we sitting here and why are we not in heaven? Right from the beginning. Why are we still suffering? Because? Uh, not why am I suffering? Why are we all suffering? Why are we all sinners? Because we are sinners, right? Why are we sinners? Say again? Uh, no. Way back. Okay. Grace said because of Adam. Because of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell and then we are all sinners. Right? Then Christ had to come and die for our sins. Now, Adam and Eve fell. Why did, how did Adam and Eve fall? Shirley, do you remember? Shirley. Um, Adam. Adam listened to his wife. <laughs> Which is true. Maybe he ate, he ate from that. Uh, forbidden, he ate the forbidden fruit. 
which Eve gave to him, why did Eve eat it? She was tricked by Satan. How did Satan trick her? Satan twisted and changed God's word. Remember? Now Satan from the beginning knew that by changing one word in God's word, he can change the whole meaning and we were deceived and we are all sinners today. Satan always attacked God's word from then until now. Alright? So that's why the Westminster Divine rightly ensured that the new scriptures to tell us inspiration, preservation, pure 100%. Now next, let's go on. And that is, the, is the King James Version, this Bible that we use, is KJV inspired. Let's see who else. Anyone? Is KJV inspired? Howard, Howard says no. KJV is not inspired. But we just read, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. We just contradicted the no. King James Bible. Very good, right? That's why you must be firm. Huh? Sometimes people challenge you. What I say? Right, when we know scriptures, we are careful. The original is inspired. Greek and the Hebrew Masoretic text, the Greek textus receptus, these are inspired. So, how, what is this called? It's called a translation. These are translations, okay? A translation inspired, no, the original languages are translated, are inspired. They still, we still have copies of it copy and, and printed copies of it, right? So King James Bible is not inspired. But why do you use King James Bible, uh, okay? Because it faithfully translates from the Masoretic text and Greek text. Why don't we use other versions? Better. Because right, they're not versions, they're perversions. Why, do you, why don't you call them versions? We call them perversions. This is not faithfully um, translated to retain the meaning. Number one, they don't faithfully translate to retain the meaning. They paraphrase. They interpret for you. Number two, um, they take away the deity of Christ. Uh, why? Now, why are there some Bibles that I just told you? They say this verse is not there. That verse is not there. Why? Because of corrupt text. Huh? Because the underlying text is corrupt. Just want to make sure. Pastor Isaac, okay. <laughs> now, just, just for us to make sure we, we understand. Huh? There, there are Bibles. The English Bible, for example. Alright? The English Bible, all English Bibles are translated from Greek and Hebrew, right? Hebrew, Old Testament, and Greek. New Testament, they are translated from translated. Okay? Now the important thing is are these texts good or corrupt texts? Understand me? Are these good or corrupted texts? Now if you have a corrupt text, then when you translate what do you get? A corrupt English Bible, correct? The text that the King James Bible uses is a Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus. Now these two texts are very faithful, they are very pure, they are very consistent. All other English Bibles are based on generally um, the Nestle Allen text and uh, um, Westcott and Hall text. Now this text, just within the Greek, 
there are lots and lots and lots of contradictions. That's why they can't figure out. They say, all right, the book of Mark, they look at it, the book of Mark, so many contradictions, and they some don't have these verses. So they say, ah, it's not in the Bible. So they use corrupt text, that's why they end up with Bibles that say, this is not there, that is not there. And so understand that. So the King James Bible, King James Version is the only one that uses this text purely and they, they translate it faithfully. Okay, that's why we use the King James Bible, not because we like old English, alright? Not because we like old English. Alright, the New King James Version, very good question. Now the New King James Version, they will say that they based it on this text. But actually, they also use a fair amount of this text. Alright, it's not purely the textus recitus. It's not purely that. It's plus the best cop and pop and that's the end text. So that's what it is. Yeah. Now that the young people don't have to read King James anymore. Yes, so that is what I said. They must be a way to reach out to them. Yeah, thank God. They need to die, Correct. So, so the, the question is, nowadays young people don't like to read the King James Bible. Yeah, they don't want anymore. They don't want it. Now, sometimes it's because... <laughs> it's not woman. Now, sometimes it's because they do not understand yet. Um, so, many of the young people here, um, the teens upstairs, they are 7 years old, 8 years old. Many of the parents are here. They use the King James Bible because over time, they are taught, they understand. So, sometimes it takes time for them to understand. Many of the words are obsolete. Many of the words are obsolete. Yeah. So, actually, so the question is, many words are obsolete, then how? The, the thing is, yeah, actually, now the thing is this, the words are fixed. Some of these old words, they are fixed. So in that sense, the meaning has not changed. Um, number one. Number two is, the thing is this, actually, many of them, uh, in fact, I would say the King James Bible is easier to read than literature in school. So the students, they take literature in school, it can be more difficult. They take Shakespeare, they have to. But they do not complain because they need to pass to get a degree. Right? But when it comes to God, so I want the easiest part. Even if it is not accurate, I want to read. So even the young ones, after you read a few times, you know a few of these old English words, the meaning. They are, they are not they are old English words. Once you know the meaning, it's there. Yeah, it's there. Yeah, so that is how it is. Yeah. We can talk more about that. But the point is this. Maybe I ask the friends. Do you want a man? that is in black and white, not so easy to read, okay? Not so easy to read, black and white, but that man is very reliable, will definitely get you to where you want to go, and you won't fall out the tree. Or do you want a map that is colorful, easy to read, with lots of pictures? Which one? You will definitely choose black and white. The picture is colorful, but the colorful one is not accurate, it may lead you to, it will likely lead you to the wrong place. Dangerous, right? So, we always choose what is the most accurate, most right. Otherwise, we will end up, um, like today, and he say that Jesus is not God, even Christians, because the text there has been changed by people who corrupt the text. Yeah? Let me give you an example. When the Mormons or seven Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on my door, okay? They always, the moment they knock, I say, oh, you're a Jehovah's Witness. They say, yes. They say, do you believe that Jesus is God? They say, no, we don't believe. He's just a small God. He's not the God. 
Then I say that, well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God. They say, no, the Bible does not say that Jesus is God. Alright? So I say, well, I prove to you. I'll take up my King James Bible. And then they say, no, 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 no. You cannot use the King James Bible. You have to use NIV, you have to use RSV, you have to use ESV. Because you use the King James Bible, I cannot fight with you. Because the King James Bible, we look at some verses afterwards, the King James Bible is based on texts that have very clear verses that prove that Jesus is God. These texts have been corrupted by people who did not believe that Jesus is God. So they changed those texts and the translation comes. So when they sold this text, when they sold this Bible, certain verses were left out regarding that Jesus is God. You know what happened? People didn't want to buy the Bible. People did not want to buy this modern Bible. So what did they do? So what they do is, they add back the verse, they add back the verse, but they put at the bottom of your page, this verse should not be there. Understand that? Footnote. Footnote. Alright? So same for Muslim. And almost every year, next week I'll probably have another argument with the Muslim again. Because they come to read orientation outreach, they say, I prove to you that the Bible does not say that Jesus is God. The moment I take up the King James, he says, no, 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 you cannot use that. He says, your own Christian scholars, they support all these Bibles. They support this and they support this saying that these verses should not be there. Do you understand that? So you see, the work of the devil, how powerful. Alright, so we're going to move, but we can discuss more afterwards, right? So, next, next chapter. Oh, only chapter 2. We go really fast, huh? We go really fast. What is God? Can, can someone narrate? As Christians, what is God? We must know the definition. Let's say God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in its being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. Right? Those of you who want to just type what is God, Westminster Confession, you have it on the internet. So we must at least know the definition. When you know the definition, you will change your thinking about God. Alright? Now next, how many persons are there or is there in the Trinity? Think carefully, yeah? How many persons in the Trinity? Alright, we'll be case students. So, so you know, I'm going to call him. <laughs> Alright, so Jin, how many persons in the Trinity? Think carefully, yeah? Only one time. Only one answer. You know the good thing, if I let you do the exam to yourself, no one knows you make a mistake, right? Not everybody's going to know. <laughs> but when people know, when you know, you change, you remember. So how many persons in the Trinity? Only one. One person or three person? Wow. So as I want to say four, huh? Three persons or one person? How many say three? How many say one? The rest? Not sure. It's three persons. Three persons. Alright? Three persons. Now, let's, let's answer question number 10. Let's answer question number 10. Then I'll explain more. Now, what verse would you use to show skeptics who say that is no such thing as Trinity? Do you, have, do you have people say Trinity? No such thing. No such thing as Trinity. Where do you find the verse that talks about Trinity? Very good. No, wrong. First John 5, 
7. Please turn to 1 John 5, 7. All these are fundamentals of our faith, alright? 1 John 5, 7. Anyone has a non-King James Bible? 1 John 5, 7. Let's read together. Okay, let's read together. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And these three are one. Alright? Now, how many are mentioned here? Three, right? The Father, the Word, which we know is Jesus Christ. In the beginning of the Word, the Word is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Three are mentioned. So there are three persons. They are unique. That's what we call them persons. Not person like human. They are unique, right? Is the Father Jesus Christ? No, right? Is the Son the Holy Ghost? No. So they are unique individuals. Three persons. Alright, I know why some of you are thinking one. Because one God, right? One God. There are three persons but one God. One God. Okay, anyone want to explain that? Anyone try explaining that? Three persons but one God? Richard, three persons but one God. How do you explain that? How to explain? Draw a diagram, alright, question number nine. Hey, before we move, our visiting friends, do you use the King James Bible? No? Do you have a Bible with you? What does your Bible say in 1 John 5, 7? Oh, okay. And then, any footnotes at the bottom? Is it like that? No? So, but how do you know? 
Is there anywhere in scriptures that can prove? Because people teach that. There are Christians, there are cults that teach these three are actually one person, one God, one person. They appear in different forms at different ages. Okay? How do you prove from scriptures? Very easy. Which scene? The baptism of Jesus Christ. Right? What happened at the baptism of Jesus Christ? Jesus came out of the water. He came out of the water. And then what did they hear? The voice from heaven. Jesus was not talking. He's not ventriloquist, huh? he's not talking. The voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? Then what happened? He saw the Holy Spirit as a dove descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. One scene, three separate individuals, right? Okay, so when people say, actually it's one God, they're all the same, they just appear in different form. The Bible does not say that. So we know that. So can we say they're equal? They're not equal. They're not equal. They're not equal. Alright? They're not equal to each other. And they are not one another. But they are equal, equal, equal in something. Is Jesus God? The Bible tells us so. Is Holy Spirit God? The Bible tells us so. Alright? Is God the Father God? The Bible tells us so. They are all God. The Bible says so. They are not the same as each other. The Bible tells us. We can only depict what the Trinity is. We cannot explain it. If someone says, how can three be the same? You can't explain it. God simply says that. We accept it. Okay? So that is how you, you depict yourself. That's why I always say Sunday school teachers do not teach wrongly. Alright? Teach carefully. Make sure just take what God states. So does, does the word Trinity exist in the Bible? No, it doesn't, right? It doesn't. But this is the meaning of it. The meaning of it. There are many words that don't exist in the Bible doesn't mean it's not there, right? Now, Lebanon. Don't bring the speech. Number 11. God knows all things, so he decided and decreed. Now, chapter 3, yeah? Chapter 3 is about decrees of God. Decree of God. God knows all things, so he decided and decreed based upon what he saw would happen in the future. Decree means God control, God provide for, God makes it happen. Okay? That's the mean God decree. So now I ask you, based on what we have studied in scriptures, God decree based on what he see this is going to happen. He see that one day that um, so and so is going to go swimming and then he is going to believe in me. Okay, now I want to say it. Or he decreed it without that thing even having happened yet and he is the one who make it happen. Which? There. The second one. When God decrees something, it's not because he saw the future and that's going to happen. Alright, now I decide that this is what I'm going to do. Understand that? God is the one who decides the future. God did not choose to act based on what he saw in the future. Please remember, because again I say that it's open theism. Another new theology that is extremely popular with Christians and Bible College today, open theism is this. Open theism is, the future is not known yet. What God is going to do depends on how you and I react. Okay, that is not what scripture says so. Scripture says, he decreed whatsoever to come to pass based on his pleasure and his goodwill. That's it. 
Okay, so now this, so it is false, huh? False. God predestined who he saved before after the fall. God predestined someone to be saved before or after the fall. After Adam and Eve fell, then God said, oh no, Adam and Eve fell. Now I need to decide who to save. But God already decided who, he predestined who he will save before Adam and Eve fell. Which one? Before. How do you know? What Bible verse? Hmm? We are, we like before, before when? Before the foundation of the world. Adam and Eve fell after the foundation of the world or before. They fell after. We are already predestined before. In other words, before Adam and Eve fell, before God even made the foundation of the world, He already said, I'm going to save them. Understand that? So it's before the fall. Now, now let me ask you, is there a verse that talks about predestination? Or not? Because there is no predestined. Which verse? Not sure. Alright, let's turn to Say again. Alright, let's turn to this first Peter 1.20. First Peter 1.20. Because some people don't believe in election and predestination. First Peter chapter 1. Okay? Now, first of all. Now God has already ordained, but this is the ordination. Let's do 20 and 21 together. Who verily was ordained for the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in his last time for you, who by him who believe in God and raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Now here is those who believe in God, Christ was ordained before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world was formed. Christ was already foreordained to be the Savior. But now, what about Romans 8.13? You write down Romans 8.13. It's impossible to finish this exam. Romans 8.13. Can we read Romans 8.13 together? Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. Now please notice that God did predestinate us. God did predestinate us. And when he predestinated us, he will justify us. We will serve with justification of us. So my friends, do you see scriptures? It is God that chose you. You didn't choose God. That is the love of God. Now next, number 14. So God's decree not to save all will affect His glory. God, did God decree to save everyone? Is everyone going to heaven? No. God said already some will go to hell. Now God did not choose to save all. So some say, well, if God did not decree to save all, it affects His glory. Does it affect His glory? It does not. Okay, we have to remember that God is not man. We cannot understand, but He is sovereign. Right? He is sovereign. When you see God, you can ask Him. But God says, for my glory, for my pleasure, God says, it does not affect my glory. Now, next, the doctrine, now why, why I ask this is this, uh, 
because some people say that oh, if God don't save all, then he is then he doesn't appear glorious in loving God. So they change the gospel. Is that that? They change the gospel and say God loves God and God will save all. And one day all of us are going to heaven. That is what Billy Graham said. Billy Graham, in order not to make God look so evil in his mind, if God will say all God is evil, he don't understand God's sovereignty. So he says, well, as long as you believe in some God, you're going to heaven. You don't believe me, watch the, watch the YouTube. It is life with him saying, all right, so we will change the gospel. Do not. God's glory is God's glory. Don't have to worry about that. Number 15, the doctrine of God's decree shows his what overall. Sovereignty, very good. God's sovereignty over all. God is sovereign. When God decrees something to happen, he is sovereign. I want to buy some tables for the church because we ran out of tables. Alright? Radio tables, commercial tables are so expensive. We need to buy more tables for church. And then I will check the people. Get three, ask the people to get three quotes. I will discuss with session. I'm not sovereign. I discuss with people. You know what is sovereign? Sovereign means no one questions. Now when it comes to God's word, God is sovereign. When a preacher God preaches God's word faithfully, it is authoritative. But sovereign means he is king. He answers to no one. He does not need to ask permission from anyone. He does not need to discuss with anyone, should I do this? He does not discuss that with human beings. God is the sovereign. He chooses. Now that is his glory. That is who God is. I hope that we have the right view of God, my friends. Today many of us have the wrong view of God because Christianity has brought God so low that God exists to please men. No, when you read the Bible, when you study a lot of these doctrines, you see a very high, glorious, sovereign God that is the Almighty. Right? You see God in very different eyes. That's why I ask this question. He is sovereign over all. That's why when the people question Paul, Paul, then how come God don't save everyone? Then Paul says what? Oh man, who are you to question God? You know, oh man, he said, please know that we are men. We don't question the sovereign God. Right? We don't understand. It's like an ant, an ant trying to understand your action. You think an ant can understand many things that we do? They cannot. Right? Now, next. Chapter 4. Creation. God created everything ex nihilo. We keep emphasizing that. What does it mean? Uh, out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Latin. God created out of nothing. Very, very important point in scriptures because today Bible translations, today Christian teachings, today in school, they teach that God created, but God created with existing materials. You must understand the difference. In other words, when God created, He created from nothingness. Do you understand nothingness? I don't think you understand nothingness. Means there was a time when there was no time. Understand that? Time did not exist. God created time. Can you understand no time? Not no time, a very busy time. Time did not exist. Can you imagine time did not exist? Time did not exist. That's why the Bible says in the beginning. Not when. But in the beginning, God created, God created time. From then on, God created things on earth, in the universe, when they never existed. Matter never existed. Please understand that is how the Bible describes God's creation. 
Now, this means this shows the power of God. Now, Sharon is preparing for Mother's Fellowship and she was reading something about creation, she's doing Genesis. So she was reading to me some of the things that, that the Schofield Bible notes write about. Right? They basically pre they basically explain that there were pre-existing materials and God created using pre-existing materials. Because all these are trying to fit something, which is the next question. So please remember Christmas God created out of, of absolute nothingness that is the power of God. What is theistic evolution? Okay, let me see. Um, theistic evolution. Uh, uh, what is theistic evolution? So that God, or like, uses evolution to make men? Um, yes. Actually, I don't know. Theistic creation. Theistic creation is what Christian universities teach today and what Christian preachers preach today. Theistic creation is God created. They say, okay, I won't fight with you. God created. But God created using evolution. God created using evolution. Have you heard that before? No. Alright, so, so many Christians today believe that God created, but God created through the process of evolution. Means God created through millions and millions of years. All these things just evolve, mix about. But what does the Bible say? God created Adam, right? Out of the dust, Adam appeared. God did not say he let Adam, he created through this mess of mud, and then this mud mixed together, and then for millions of years, then Adam slowly became a, a monkey, then Adam slowly became a man. God did not say that God created and Adam was a man. God created Eve from his ribs. God did not have to go and evolve ribs. Not evolve ribs, evolve Eve, right? So, now, why should Christians reject theistic creation? Mark. Why should we reject it absolutely and totally? Because we know God created all things, and if we do believe in evolution, then basically we deny what the word of God teaches. Exactly. Now, God in Genesis account wrote very specifically how he created. Right? And then we say, no, no, that is not true. God gives evolution. You don't see God describing evolution anywhere in the Genesis account. In other words, what are we calling God? A liar. God, your word is false. I mean, you're a liar. No, no, God, you're telling me you're feeling. You know, this is how you create. Right before our own God. So that cannot be so. Now, sight number 18 cite the three biblical arguments against non-literal 624-hour days creation. What I mean, I mean by that? Did God create in six days? Or did God create in billions and billions of years? Six days. We believe that. But Christians, some say that no, God created through billions of years through evolution. What are the arguments from the Bible that this cannot be so? Now this is the your memory. Number one. Numeral adjectives. Very good. Numeral adjectives. Now if you turn to Genesis account, it will say first day, on the second day, on the third day, first day, second day. Third day, and so on. Now, when the Hebrew language, we have to use language, huh? 
and so we don't have a choice. When the Hebrew language uses the word yodei, and we use a numerical adjective, first, second, third, it always, without fail, that's the language, always refers to literal 24-hour day. The language itself, you cannot argue with language, right? Um, you cannot say, no, it doesn't say that when the original language, that's exactly what it means. It's like I'm trying to say, this is a marker, right? And then we translate to Mandarin. This is This is an And I said, no, 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 English is, this is a marker. Then keep insisting that this is When the original language cannot mean an apple. This cannot mean anything else except actual day. Now, God knows that men will fool around with this. And you read your Genesis account, you will notice God repeatedly say day and night. Day and night. Day and night, day and night, day and night. Alright? So, it's like not once, but repeated again. It's talking about evening and morning. Evening and morning. Evening and morning. Evening and morning. It just goes repeatedly to emphasize that this is a literal normal day. That's the second argument. What's the third? That's the easiest. Huh? Say again. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. The fourth commandment. The fourth commandment, God rested on the seventh day and asked us to rest, right? We rest on the seventh day. And he, he used what as an example? He used creation. He said he created in six days, he rested the seventh. How many of you want to believe in billions of years? We are going to have to wait for billions of years before we can rest. Huh? We start Sunday, we rest first. <laughs> Alright, so please, we remember that God, in God's explanation of keeping the Sabbath, He used creation to explain that. He worked six days, seven events. He did not talk about billions of years involved then. Alright, so these arguments, these are biblical arguments, very straightforward, that we should just be very clear in our hearts. Now, why do I want you to be so clear in your heart? Because you want to point out the errors of others? No, because I do not want God's children to believe that God is a liar. Understand that? Now, fathers, let me ask you. If you say something and your child goes to school and everyone says that that is not true, and then your child says, yeah, daddy, that's not true, how would you feel? How would you feel? God says, I give you my word. Precisely, I preserve it to tell you this is what happened. But yet, Christians, you want to believe. You want, you don't want to believe what I say and you want to call me a liar and believe in something else and promote something else. That is why it hurts the church and God's name. Understand that? Alright? So next. Um, chapter 5. Providence. What is God's providence? God's providence is God's control, God's overseeing, and God's providing for all things. All things, and all things means all. Ordinary providence and special providence. Anyone remember? Um, Douglas? Okay, 
Now, when you read the Bible, you will see these two kinds of providence. Ordinary providence. Ordinary providence is where God provides for all mankind. General providence. Is the rain general, um, general providence? It is common. Everyone enjoy the rain. Alright? But then there is special providence where God specifically works. Right? God is very specific in controlling, providing and making some things happen. Can you think of one special providence that we've been talking about in Mohan? By singular care and providence kept pure. The, the keeping of God's word is a special providence that God personally makes sure that it keeps pure. The believer, how do you get saved? Special providence. God purposely came into your life and saved you. Alright? So we see how God works. That is what we are studying about providence. Phase 3. What is the difference between God's sovereignty, decree and providence? And you remember God's sovereignty? Because people, sometimes Christians, we talk very, um, in a muddled way. We say, oh, God's sovereignty. Wow, God's providence. Our God is decreed. Then you get it all mixed up. Now, God's sovereignty is, God is in absolute control, and He answers to no one. That is God's sovereignty. So, for example, you lose your job. Hmm? You lose your job. They say, well, that's God's sovereignty. God sovereignly controls all things, and He has allowed my life. You can also use God's providence in that sense. It's providence that I lost my life, I lost, lost my life, lost my job, because the next day I didn't turn up, the whole hospital collapsed and everyone died. Could that will be God's providence, right? God's providence. So God works out His sovereignty, or God's decree is what He has ordained to come to pass. God works out His decree through His providence, right? And God sovereignly decides. Okay, so we shouldn't mix all these words up be more precise in our theology. So because God is in absolute control, God knows all things, should Christians say, well, luckily I didn't eat that food that day. Everyone had died, but luckily I didn't. And they say, we shouldn't use luckily, right? God is always in control. God's providence is the one that prevented us. So we don't say luckily. Why, why thank luck when it is God? Right? So what should we say? Fortunate. Sometimes people say fortunate means, if it's again fortune. means it's random. It's my fortune. Yeah, my God's providence. So very often we say thank God. Thank God I didn't step off on that road. Thank God. Because really God worked and let's thank Him. Should we thank God for losing our jobs? Why do we thank God for losing our jobs? Or maybe you get cancer. Should we thank God for cancer? Exactly. In all things, give thanks to God for that is the will of God. That is God's will, you know? Somebody says, I don't know what's God's will. No, it is God's will. God said, this is my will. Give thanks always. Right? So that's one reason. But why is it that God said, you should give thanks? Even if you get cancer, even if you lose your job or you, your arm is chopped off. Because God is sovereign. God is in control, right? If God is in control, the thing that happened to you, is it accidental? God said, oh, I kept my eyes off little Isaac for a while. Oh, Isaac injured his leg. No, God is always in control. 
And even the whole world is spinning and breaking apart from you and everything is collapsing, God is still in control. And if God is in control, who is God? God is your, your heavenly Father. If God is totally in control, if God is your heavenly Father, and He wants us to call Him Father for a reason, that we know that He loves us, He cares for us, He wants the very best for us, then why do we defend? Means what has happened to you is what? Is bad for you. No, it's the best for you. God knows the future. God is in absolute control. God let things happen, not because He lost control. And because God is your Father, my Father, anything that happened, He wants only the best in our life. That's why we defend. That's why I say, God say, defend for all things. When you and I face something that is bad, do bad things happen to Christians? Yeah. Yes. But are they really bad? Very bad. Yeah, they, they, they are humanly speaking bad. If you lose a little, that's, that's not good. But actually, in reality, God has a purpose. God allowed it for a purpose. God allowed it for good. That's why what's the other verse? All things work together for good to them that are faith. So in that sense, does bad things happen? Maybe you don't know God is bad. Maybe you don't know God is bad. Yes, actually that's one of the things we come up just now. Is it because God, they don't love God and therefore bad things happen to them? Leah, <laughs> do bad things happen to Phoebe when they are not? <laughs> do bad things happen to Phoebe when she's naughty? It happens, right? You may get consequences. But Leo, did you mean it for bad? Leo meant it for good, right? Leo meant it so that when I discipline you, you will stop doing that which will hurt you. So in the reality, at the end of the day, not, no bad thing happens to a Christian. Everything that happens is for our good. This is, now why spend some time on this? This is the whole point about these few chapters. The sovereignty of God, the decrease of God, and the providence of God. All this to understand who God is, why He does things, He changes our life. Why do we study doctrines? Why do we study all these things? Why do we study about God? Because the more we understand about God, the more we know how to look at our lives when things happen. Alright? So that's why we talk about all these things, not for fun. Okay, so... Hey, actually, yeah. So, sir, number 22, that was exactly the question. So, number 22, when things go wrong in my life, does it mean that God's providence is absent? No. When things, bad things happen, go wrong in our life, God's providence has not left you. God's providence is still there. It could either be that God, when you say, is chastising the person. Alright, you keep doing this, I will have to make this bad things, so-called bad things happen, so that you stop that sin. Right? Or, sometimes God, now, sometimes we love God, we know there's no sin in our lives. We are obedient. But then things keep going wrong also. Why? Why do you think so? When we study the providence of God, why was that so shit? Well, I mean, uh, so <laughs> Finish. 
strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith. Now, sometimes God allows trials and temptations. That is in First Peter. God allows trials and difficulties in our life to build up our faith. It is not because we have sinned. Sometimes it is. But even when it is sin, God's providence is there to bring us back. Can you think of an example where God's providence, there's nothing wrong, but God allows a lot of difficulties in your life. You say, God, I don't understand why this period, so many things go wrong. And I've been walking close to you, I've been obedient as far as I know. But why are these things happening? Why? John, to strengthen our faith. Right? John, do you feel that your life, your spiritual life, has changed a lot in the recent years? Because you lost your job, because you go through many difficulties, but they have changed, hasn't it? Right? Did you used to come for Bible study? No. Now you come. How all these things have gotten you close to God? Sometimes God does these things because not because He hates us, because He loves us. How many of you want to become strong and muscular, and then you go to your gym trainer? And then he says, just eat burgers, sleep late, and then uh, jump for three minutes. Do that once a week. You won't grow, right? He said, do this, do this, do this. Wow, very painful. Oh, my muscles are so aching. Wow, why are you doing this to me? Because I want you to be fit. Right? So God's providence looks like that. So it does not mean his providence has left us. Now, chapter 6, of fall of men. Of sin and of punishment. Now we talk about... The fall. This is what we studied in chapter 6. Now, because of because Adam is man's but hate. Therefore, when he fell, the guilt of sin was but to me. This is the but sin. I know this cryptic. But those of you should be able to answer this, right? Ah, Rachel, Adam is man's but hate. Representative. Representative hate. Very good. Or it is the word we often use federal. Federal hate, but you're right. Easier to remember is fact representative head. Now my friends, do you know? And then when he fell, the guilt of sin was what to me? Was passed on to me. Right? That imputed passed on to me. This is called the what sin? Original sin. Okay, now. Why are we sinners? Because Adam represents us. If Adam passed the test, he represents the whole mankind. Understand that? We were all not be sinners. That's why we are all sinners today. The Bible tells us in Romans 8. Because of one man's sin, many become, all of us become sinners. Now, this is called the original sin. Now, Adam's what nature? Adam's sinful nature was also passed on to me. Therefore, I sin naturally. Now, this is called the what sin? This is now the personal sin. Personal sin. Remember. Please understand this. When Adam fell, we inherit his sinful nature. A baby that is just born, just came out, just came out. Is the baby a sinner? You do what? Was Sam Samuel a sinner when he popped up of you? Was he a sinner? No. Yes. What? Huh? Yes, because of the DNA. Because it's Adam's child, right? He's from that Adam's line. So straight away, every child that comes into the world, straight away sinner. Hmm? But as the child grows, that's the original sin. The imputed sin, as the child grows, he will commit sin by itself naturally. 
he be now becomes personally responsible also. Anyone need to teach your child to lie, to get jealous, to steal, to get angry? No, no, they will do it. Even you keep the child in a vacuum, right? You will still sin. You commit the personal sin. So we, we are judged for our sin not only because of the original sin, but because we will sin ourselves. Alright? Personal sin. Now next. Alright, number 25. Totally depraved means a person will not choose God. Because some people say, I'm not totally depraved. Uh, Caleb, are you totally depraved? Have you killed, murdered, um, all those things? No, you're quite good. How can I call you totally depraved? Now, theologically, when we say man is totally depraved, means spiritually they are hopeless. They will never do anything spiritually good. They will not choose God. Okay? That is what it means. Doesn't mean a person won't do charity work and all that. But even when a person does charity work, is it spiritual? No. It's usually still personal. For personal glory, personal satisfaction, not about God. Alright? So his, his good works are not done for God. Number 26, I am regenerated after salvation. The corrupt nature still remains, so I must modify the flesh daily. Is that true or false? True. Now, we become a new creature, but because there's a sinful flesh, it's read from the Bible, that's why we continue to sin. Okay? So we must daily modify the flesh. Don't listen to the flesh. Listen to God. His word. Depend on God. Next. Um, Alright, very fast. Chapter 7. God's covenant with man. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of what? God in the Garden of Eden made the covenant of works. Right? right? The covenant of works. Now, what is covenant of works? When eternal life was promised based on perfect and personal obedience. God told Adam, I make a contract with you, right Adam? A covenant with you. If you obey me perfectly, I tell you don't eat from that tree of from that tree you don't eat. Obey me perfectly. When you pass the test, you have eternal life forever. And so will your descendants. So that is covenant of works, based on works, based on obedience. So when after the what? God made a second covenant, which is called the covenant of what? After the fall. After Adam and Eve fell, God had to immediately start a second covenant, a second contract. And this second covenant was called the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Now, what is the covenant of grace? The covenant of works. Covenant of works means you obey to be saved. After Adam and Eve fell, why cannot God continue the covenant of works? Do what? Why God cannot say, alright, continue covenant of works? Why must he immediately start covenant of grace with mankind? Because of sin. Because we can no longer obey God perfectly. So there's trouble. Because we immediately have Adam's information. So God needs to start covenant of grace. What is covenant of grace? Means God is the one who will save us. 
We cannot save ourselves. God graciously saved us. Okay? When we, that's why He provides Christ as our replacement, we put our faith in Him. So remember that. Now, after number 29, the Old Testament believers were hands, uh, hands no word, no word, hands obtained salvation by obedience to God's law. So the Old Testament believers, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, they obtained salvation by obeying God's Ten Commandments. Uh, seven. Is that true? Say again. Wrong. False. Right? False. So how would they say? Say again. By faith also. And it's what covenant? Covenant of grace. Understand that. The only time that man can be saved by works was when? In the garden of Eden before the fall. After that, not possible because we are sinners already. If it's possible, God don't have to start a new covenant. God don't have to start a new covenant. When did the covenant start? Immediately after the fall. Not during Abraham and Isaac's time. Okay, please don't mix that up. Now, next. The Old Testament animal sacrifices did not save the people, but it pointed the people to put their faith in the future. What offer? Huh? The coming of Christ can... Or, you know they sacrifice what kind of animal? Pay. Lamb, right? Coming Lamb of God, right? They put their faith in the Lamb of God. So please know, Old Testament people were saved purely by faith in the coming of Christ, which is the Lamb of God. So every time they sacrifice the animal, please don't think these Old Testament people, they are cave people. They are long hair cave people, you know, never brush their teeth and they're very stupid. And then they take animals, they kill the little all animals, save me. They are not, they are very intelligent people who God feel the spirit. They understand what they are doing. When they kill, when they put their hand on the animal head, when they slit the throat and blood gush out, and the, and the lamb cry, and they see the pain. You know what they are thinking? The Bible in 1 Peter and Luke 11 tells us that the Holy Spirit tells them, reminds them that this is the lamb of God. That one day they will have to die for them. When they see the animals screaming, they went, they think they will scream. The, the sheep, they are very quiet. Then cut and see the animal in pain and the blood gush out. They know that this animal is dying in their place. Christ one day will suffer in their place. They knew that, right? So they are not, people think about oh, these animals are saving us. No, the Bible tells us they knew. They wrote down in Hebrews and in 1 Peter. Okay, next. The thing is this. Um, the administration of this covenant after the fall is the same in the Old and New Testament. True, right? It is the same. Hey, no. Hey. The administration of this covenant in the Old Testament and New Testament is it the same? How God administered? Ah. So, Rowena said, no. Why? Because of question number 33. Let's answer question number 33 and we don't know. Now, in the New Testament, Okay, now, in the New Testament, what sacrament replaces the Passover? Romania. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper replaces the Passover in the covenant of grace. Let me draw. 
Okay, so you go to church every week, right? You take Holy Communion, right? Then, then you see baptism. What is happening? Do you understand? Covenant of grace. Old Testament, New Testament. Both Old Testament and New Testament people are saved by grace, correct? Not by burning animals or obeying commandments. They put their faith in Christ that is coming. In the Old Testament, they have a very important meal that they kill an animal and eat it. It's called the what? Passover. Passover meal, right? Passover meal. And when the Lord, oh, okay, before that, Passover meal. Who can take Passover meal? They must go through, huh? Only the Jews. And there's something, but if you are you are Jew, something will happen to you for the meal. And if you want to be a Jew, you must go through that. But circumcision. Circumcision. God says, anyone who wants to partake, if they are non Jew, they must go through circumcision, then they can take the Passover. Right? Remember that? Now, in the New Testament, when did the Lord Jesus say, This is my cup, hey, um, take it, this is my body which is broken for you? The night that they were eating the Lord's Supper, what was that night? What was that dinner? It was a very special dinner that night he was serving with the disciples. It was exactly the Passover meal. Know that? And the Lord on that night said, from now onwards, you always kill the lamb. I'm going to die. The actual lamb, of course, is going to die. From then on, you don't need to kill the lamb to remind yourself anymore. So no more Passover. Say from that night, when he give the bread and the cup, he said, this meal, this will change. They say, take it, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then, he became the Lord's Supper. Became the Lord's Supper, understand? Became the Holy Communion. You know why he did Holy Communion? Because the Lord replaced it. It's still the same covenant of grace. The circumcision, Colossians chapter 1, say, today believers are circumcised without, with the circumcision made without hands. Means not physical. What is it? It's described as baptism. Right? Circumcision made without hands in Colossians chapter 1 is explained as baptism. So these two are replaced. Understand that? So Old Testament administered through this. New Testament administered through this. Are the administration the same? Different. Is it same covenant? Same covenant. Because people think, oh, all these things means covenant of works. No, same covenant. Understand that? Okay. Now, I ask you this, because you have to know what you're going through when you take the Holy Communion. But now, I ask you chapter, uh, look at page 3, question 32. Then I think we'll end soon. Come finish. Question number 32. Now, in Hebrews 8, 6. The Bible calls this, look here, huh? the Bible calls this, the better, because it's better covenant, better, better, sujin. Why does, now if it is the same covenant, kill animal, cut skin, is also covenant of grace, right? Baptism. Lord's Supper is also covenant of grace, right? If these are both covenant of grace, why does the Bible call this better? Call this one better? Because it is non-bloody. Very good. Because it is 
Number one, non-bloody. Alright? So what? Right? Yeah, really answer. Okay. <laughs> so how come so accurate? It's accurate Right? It's number two. Question 32, the answer is number two. It is better because of the administration not is non-bloody. A lot of blood. Pass over, kill anyone. Circumcision, blood, painful. This one, any blood? Definitely, as a pastor, I like it. <laughs> I also call it better. The apostle calls it better. If not, the church every Sunday is scrubbing blood. They're not going to bring animals to the kill. Right? God says, no more. After Christ came, Christ fulfilled physically, they no longer, God didn't want to administer, simpler, non-bloody. It's not better because it is better than covenant of works. Understand that? It's not better because Old Testament people say by works. Not that. People misunderstand better. When they say better, it's all Old Testament people say by different way. New Testament better, we are under grace, you know. Those poor people are under, under law. They must obey law. We don't need to obey, they are under grace. That is wrong thinking. Under grace, under law, under grace, we still must obey the Ten Commandments. Yes. Is it better because Christ is a perfect man? Yes, it is much man. Is it better because Christ is the perfect lamb? Christ is the perfect lamb here also. Christ is the perfect lamb here also. It's the same. What they do here is as good as here. Alright? Now, there is another passage that says that this is clearer. Means, means now people understand even more clearly. Last time they understood, but it won't be as clear as now. Now, now we know exactly how Christ died. These people, they only know Christ was coming, but they don't know how Christ will be betrayed, how Christ will die, how Christ will resurrect. They only have some idea from scriptures. But here we know it very clearly. Right? So this is better revelation in this sense. I'll ask you one last question, then we close. Okay, ask our friends. Now, when Christ heaven come, right? This is Old Testament, then Christ came, and then this is New Testament, right? So let me ask you a question. Before Christ came, because Christ fulfilled, then we have this very simple one. Down here, did they, when they die, did they get forgiven? Um, when they do this, were their sins forgiven completely and when they died, did they go to heaven straight away? Or, because Christ has not come, has not fulfilled this, heaven become this, right? Heaven become this. And then therefore, they're still waiting. Then when they do all this, their sins did not get fully forgiven until Christ came. They, they did not immediately go to heaven because they were still waiting for this to happen that all these are valid. Is that true? Or, when they did this, they put their faith in one day let God will come and die in my place. I believe in that, not in my works. When they do all this, they understood that when they die, they go to heaven straight away. And their sins were forgiven totally when they offer sacrifices. Which one? Second one. Second one, understand that. Say what now, read. Uh, you will be sacrificing again in the future, right? Say again. Yeah. You think you will come back again? 
Yeah, this is to come back. Yeah, so in the future, in Ezekiel, there will be these sacrifices coming back, you know. The question is why? The question is why? Alright? There will be the temple that will have sacrifices again. Okay, but that's for another question. I'll talk to you, I'll explain to you why. Alright, but for this, now, uh, why, why I want to say this is, now, if Christ came and Christ failed, if Christ failed, Christ committed one sin, hmm? what would happen to all these people? All in vain. All in that. You understand that? When God promised something, it will surely happen. And God will make sure it happens. That is why when Christ was on earth, that was for later question, but I just explain now. Do you understand now why Christ must obey the law perfect? Christ must not sin. Christ cannot sin. Because if he just committed a smaller sin, he's no longer the perfect sacrifice, then we're all finished. Understand that? That is how much God committed to save us. Did God need to do this? We don't need to. But God committed to come to earth, perfectly obey God's law when He's God. He doesn't need to do anything for man. Why I want to explain all this to you is for you and I to know. When we study theology, when we understand all these things, we must move our hearts to love God. Can you imagine anyone in this life who does this for you? Sometimes someone does very nice things for us. Well, we hear them cry. We're so, so touched by your love. Right? Go back and think about this theology. What God did for us. And ask ourselves, why do we love you? Okay, so now we can only cover until question number three means chapter eight over. You go back and do the exams. <laughs> right? And then we go to very quickly the next round. And we will probably next round our friends see how it goes. If not, we'll continue to the next chapter. Okay, let us pray.